0: Please turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. And I am going to call an audible that I hope doesn't surprise the folks in the audio booth. I'm going to start reading what I did last week, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. I'll be preaching chapter 5, 1 through 10. If you can't add those last three verses, don't worry about it, okay? But uh, sometimes they work magic up there. Hebrews 5. uh, the, The book of Hebrews... You recall, the the theme of Hebrews is to proclaim the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is greater than angels, we began with. And then we saw that Jesus is greater than Moses, that the gospel came to us through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses. And Jesus' gospel is infinitely greater than the law brought to us through Moses. The new covenant, we'll see later on, is greater than the old covenant. The eternal Sabbath rest is infinitely greater, eternally greater than that weekly Sabbath rest that is enjoyed in this present life. Jesus, next we find in chapter 4, is our great high priest, greater than any merely human or Aaronic priest. And that's the focus of our text this evening. And that's particularly fitting for Easter Sunday. We celebrate the victory of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, over sin and death. Think of what He accomplished when He died on the cross. He demonstrated the greatness of God's love for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, greater love has no one than a man lays down his life for his friends. And He tells us in John 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. We read in this very text, Hebrews 5.8, that He learned obedience through what was suffered. That was accomplished in part on the cross. You might say uh, it was a lifelong lesson throughout His fleshly existence or His life on the earth, but it was maybe a final exam as he endured crucifixion. He made propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the divine justice, the, the holy wrath of God as he absorbed the wrath of God and experienced death in our place. He atoned for our sins. He accomplished our redemption through his unique priestly function. He not only presented a perfect sacrifice, but he presented himself as the perfect sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God. So please follow. I'll begin reading Hebrews four fourteen, 14, and uh, we'll go through Hebrews 5, verse 10. Hebrews four fourteen says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, find grace to help in our time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of God in relation or excuse me, on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Speaking of the earthly Aaronic high priest. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What I want us to see this evening is in this passage, the author of Hebrews is actually commending for us the office of the Aaronic high priesthood. This is not a negative criticism. Look how bad this is. You needed something better. He's he's positively commending what a great blessing this office has been to Israel, but then he says, as it were, and yet Jesus is infinitely better, as good as this Aaronic Jewish high priesthood was under the Old Covenant, that which comes to us through Jesus Christ. His high priesthood is so much better. Whatever good they may have accomplished on behalf of the people, what Jesus accomplished is so much more. My outline is very simple. The blessing of the Aaronic priesthood, first of all, and then secondly, the greater blessing of Jesus high priesthood, the blessing of the Aaronic high priesthood, and the greater blessing of Jesus' high priesthood. So let's look at these. First of all, this first section here uh, draws our attention to the blessing of the Aaronic high priesthood, and I call it the Aaronic high priesthood. That's not the term that's used here, but it's because Aaron was the very first high priest. He is the one who established, or the order was established in him or through him. You could call it the Old Covenant High priesthood and the new covenant high priesthood, but the covenantal term doesn't appear until chapter 7. So let's consider for a moment the the qualification for the Aaronic priesthood. The high priest we see was chosen from among men, but there was an important process about how that took place. (coughs) Every priest uh, uh, from among the Jews had to be a descendant of Levi. You remember, uh, Jacob had 12 sons. Levi was one of those sons. And so when the 12 tribes of Israel returned to the promised land after the Exodus, uh, 11 of the tribes were given their own portions of land, but the Levites were not given any land. Uh, the priesthood was, uh, was uh, committed to the Levite tribe, and they were given the portion of the sacrifices and the gifts that the other tribes were required to bring as offerings to God. And that's how the Levites were to be supported. Um, But not every Levite was a priest. Let me say that again. Not every Levite was a priest, but every priest had to be a Levite. You got that? You had to be born of the tribe of Levi, and some of those had the honor and the designation of being priest, and it was a particular honor to become high priest. Now, I said already, the very first high priest was Aaron. Aaron. Well, when Aaron died, that office of high priesthood passed to his son, Eliezer. And up until the time of Jesus, <clears throat> the passing on of the high priesthood generally stayed within families. And we find in Jesus' trial that Caiaphas was the high priest. It wasn't his father who was the previous high priest. It was his father-in-law, Annas. But that office was still passed on through families according to the providence of God. So it wasn't a matter of a man putting himself forward. His qualification was a matter of divine providence. Verse 5 tells us no one takes this honor to himself. Uh, A high priest couldn't be self-appointed. It was an honor bestowed by God through his providential arrangement. Well, let's consider for a moment the ministry of the Aaronic priesthood. The the high priest was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Look at verse 1. Every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So in that sense, the high priest is acting as a mediator between God and men to offer sacrifices that men would be able to have a right relationship with God. Individual Jews were not allowed... To make their own offerings or, or to offer their own sacrifices. They could not take the blood on the altar into the Holy of Holies. That was the, the responsibility of the priest. They needed a mediator. They needed an intermediator. They, ne- they needed one or intermediary. They needed one to act on their behalf. And that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That's an extremely vital concept to the gospel, to our understanding of the gospel, is the high priest was carrying out this priestly function on the Day of Atonement as a representative of the people, as their mediator, as it were. He offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, there were many functions and responsibilities the high priest had. It wasn't just on the Day of Atonement that he was busy and the rest of the year he could kind of kick back and relax. Some people have the idea that a pastor works one day of the week and the rest of the week we play golf or, or, or knock around or whatever. That's not true. Okay, there's lots of other things to do than show up at church on Sunday and preach. Uh, And the high priest didn't work simply one day a year on the Day of Atonement. There was many, many responsibilities that they had at other times throughout the year. But this most important function, this primary function of the great high priest on the Day of Atonement when the Lamb uh, was brought and the blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and placed on the mercy seat or the atonement covering of the Ark of the Covenant he passed through the veil into that holy place that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. It was the greatest honor, the most significant priestly function. It was part of that responsibility, offering gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people. But don't you see uh, that, that the, the, the Aaronic priesthood that priest had to be qualified. It was not something he could accomplish himself. It was something uh, arranged by the providence of God. And, and we've seen a little bit of what the work he did, his, his ministry. But I want you to think about the empathy that he showed. Verse 2 says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. These human priests, they had a degree of empathy. Empathy. Hopefully, the, 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 when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan and the first person to come along and see the Samaritan who had been beaten up and left bloody on the side of the road, the priest walked up by on the other side. Hopefully, that didn't characterize every priest. The Aaronic priests understood the full range of human weaknesses because they experienced it themselves. He, speaking of this high priest, this human high priest, he is beset With his own weakness. Now, that word "beset" is an interesting word. It's the idea of being surrounded by such that you can't get away. In fact, Paul speaks in Acts twenty-eight twenty. He's he's speaking of his chains or the bonds that he was experienced because he was prison. He spoke of wearing this chain. You might say he was beset with this chain. It was something he couldn't get away from. It exerted a matter of control over his freedom, as it were. Um, In Mark chapter 9, verse 42, our Lord says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Same word. It'd be better if a great millstone were beset, or if he were beset by a great millstone and thrown into the sea. So you see it's something that you can't get away from. And so when someone has experienced weakness you cannot escape, inescapable weakness that that, that shakes you to your core, you understand how important it is to deal with others who are weak with gentleness. You hope that people did you, and you learn something of how to reflect that to others. So the Aaronic priest, high priest, was able to deal gently with others who experienced weakness. They were able to show compassion, to be patient with people's faults and their failures because he can identify with those faults and failures himself. Verse 3 makes it clear those weaknesses he's talking about are not merely human frailty. Verse 3 tells us that uh, because of this, because of this weakness, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for the people. The weakness he's referring to here primarily is his sins. Now, before he's offered or he's qualified to offer sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of anyone else, his own sins have to be taken care of. And so, if you go back and read the Levitical instructions, it tells us that the priest was to offer a bull for his own sins on the Day of Atonement and take that in to the Holy of Holies. And then he was offered to offer a lamb for the sins of the people. It's very interesting. His offering, his sacrifice had to be a bull. There's just that be a lamb. And you say, Well why so much more for one guy than for all the people? And the answer is because as the high priest his sins were in some senses more grievous, more serious, because he was sinning against the Lord in this privileged office that he has. And so there was a requirement to cleanse his own sins. Now, this is not written there as a criticism and a weakness of uh, the, the Aaronic priesthood. It's simply stating the fact. That's the reality of human priests. Uh, they're not going to be sinless. And so there has to be arrangement for their sins to be atoned for. So, when we consider here the, the, uh, the uh, Aaronic priesthood, we see they're not self appointed. They're qualified because they're descendants of Aaron and of the tribe of Levi. Uh, in their ministry, they serve as a mediator between God and man, offerings, making offerings and sacrifices for our sins. And there's no mention here of the inadequacy and the ineffectiveness of those offerings and sacrifices. Later in Hebrews, we'll see that. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1... For since the law has has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. These sacrifices can't perfect us, they have to be offered year after year after year. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But that's not the argument he's making right here. He's saying this is a blessing. Just Jesus' greater blessing. That shortcoming is going to be addressed later. But right now, the focus is on what a blessing it is to have this priesthood. But then thirdly, he says the ironic priest is able to be empathetic. Because just like the people he was serving, he experienced his own weakness and his own need for forgiveness. So, when Jewish people in that day thought about the old covenant... Our people under the Old Covenant, when they thought about the ironic priesthood, they saw it as a great blessing from the Lord. It was a positive thing. Now, we can think of those corrupt and those malicious machinations, those, that, that scheming of the high priests of Caiaphas and Annas and all the other religious leaders as they uh, uh, cons- consorted together and conspired together against the Lord Jesus to put him to death. And we can think that's what characterized the priests and all their character and all their dealings all the time. And the answer is no. For, for the vast majority of the history of the Jewish people through the old covenant, the high priest was a noble servant of God. And in that last generation, certainly uh, the sin that was resident in them that needed to be dealt with was, was brought to the surface in horrific ways. But in general, what we see here is a picture of a blessing that comes to the people of God for the centuries where the old covenant was in effect. It was very likely, in fact, <clears throat> you think of Hannah going with her husband Elkanah to uh, Shiloh and meeting. It doesn't tell us there that Levi is the high priest, but, uh, or Eli, rather, is the high priest, but it seems that he was. And Eli deals with her. At first, he says, woman, why are you drunk? And he realizes she's not drunk. She's heartbroken. And he ministers kindness and grace to her and promises her, a year from now, you'll have a son. And that's where Samuel comes in to play. And it's very likely many Jewish believers had very positive experiences, personal experiences, interactions with that human high priest. And you say the high priest, and they think, oh, yes, I I remember, brother, whatever. And they would smile. And that's why there might be a temptation on the part of new Jewish believers in Christ to look back and go you know what I can't see my high priest I can't see my Lord I remember I, I, can, I can see this priest I can see him and I can hear him tell me that I'm forgiven and I can I can, uh, I can handle and touch and that's easier and, and, and there can be some attraction to go back when the going gets difficult for believers in those early days now again, the author is going to reveal later on the, the temporary nature. that it's only a shadow of the reality that came in Christ, that it's ineffective in accomplishing anything because it only points toward Jesus Christ. But even as with the angels and with Moses who fulfilled God's purpose in their day, they're pointing forward to Jesus. And just as he Spoke of angels and then showed how Jesus is better. And Moses and Jesus is better. Now he speaks of the high priest and says, but Jesus is far better. So let's talk secondly about the greater blessing of Jesus, high priesthood. And we'll look at the same three things. Uh, first of all, the qualification of Jesus' priesthood. The Aaronic high priest was qualified because he was a son of a high priest, a descendant of Aaron. Son of, it was a family line sort of thing. And so that gives him that qualification. Eliezer was the son of Aaron, so he becomes high priest when Aaron dies, and so forth. Jesus didn't have that. His father, Joseph, was a carpenter. His earthly father, Joseph, was a a carpenter. Verse 5 makes clear that Jesus has a different pedigree for the priesthood. Verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to... And, uh, to be made a high priest but was appointed by him that is God the Father who said you are my son that they have begotten you not son of Aaron however honorable that might be you are my son and whoever would be God's son would be qualified of a much higher priesthood than any human priest with a human father but he goes further than that he, uh, he says, uh, you're a, a priest according to the, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And again, the Aaronic priest had to be a descendant of Levi. So, he had to be according to the order of Levi, as it were. All right? We saw this morning that Jesus was the son of David. David, of course, was in the tribe of Judah. So, Jesus was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. And there was never a Jewish priest. There was never an Aaronic priest who is from the tribe of Judah. So how can this be? Well, he tells us in verse 6, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we see that taken from Psalm 110 verse 4, which we read as our call to worship, which is a messianic psalm. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, if you are a, 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 a devout Jew, and you would sit around the table with your family, and you would discuss the Scriptures together, <clears throat> or maybe you'd go to the synagogue and, and you would discuss the scriptures as they were read. And someone reads, Of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek wasn't even a Jew. What in the world could that possibly mean? Now, if you're not familiar with Mel- Melchizedek, he's kind of a mysterious character, he just sort of appears does his thing, and then he disappears. And chapter 7 really tells the story. So I'm not going to get into all that, but i just give a very brief detail. Genesis 14 tells us that there was this, this man named Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem, but he was also priest of the Most High God. And Abram and Lot had, had gone their separate ways. Lot was, had gone to Sodom, and some uh, warring kings came, and they, they conquered the area, and they took Lot hostage. So, Abram musters an army of his own servants and, and, and other kings, and they go back and they, they, they uh, defeat those marauders. They rescue Lot. They take, uh, they take plunder and return. And as they are returning from victory, Melchizedek, this, this king of Salem and this high priest of God Most High, comes out and brings bread and wine to Abram. And Abraham, Abram gives him a tenth of the plunder, or the spoils of conquest. Now, it is important for our purposes right now to understand that Melchizedek was a priest before Abram even heard the covenant that God made with him. So that was in the next chapter. He was still Abram, not Abraham, not yet the father of many nations. There was no Jewish nation established Abraham and Sarah had not yet had Isaac much less the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes. As far as we know Melchizedek had absolutely no relationship with Abram whatsoever. Abram had come from another country. Melchizedek apparently was native to that area. So he couldn't been he could have not he could not have been less Jewish in other words. And yet he was a priest of the most high God. And this Messiah, this, this, this Messiah to come, this Jewish Messiah is a priest not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. And it's interesting, the father of the Jewish nation makes offering to, through Melchizedek. So it's fitting to say that Jesus is a high priest according to that very same order. Order. So Jesus does not exalt himself to the office of high priest. He is uh, appointed there by God the Father. He's declared even in the Old Testament in this messianic psalm that you would be a priest. He would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, I said a minute ago, I'm, I'm sure people scratched their heads and had no idea. What could that really mean? And my guess, and this is purely a guess, but my guess is probably nobody had any idea what it meant until the author of Hebrews tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ah, that's what it means. I doubt anybody really understood that to that point. I could be wrong, but that's my suspicion. So, Jesus' priesthood, first of all, is superior to the Aaronic priesthood, priesthood in, its, in his qualification, Now, we're going to swap the order a bit here. I'm going to talk secondly about his base, uh, uh, before I talk about uh, his his priestly function or the work that he does, the ministry, I want to talk about his his empathy or the basis for his empathy. And there are two aspects of Jesus' earthly experience that are emphasized here. In verse 7, we read, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, the Bible records many, many times Jesus went off and he prayed. Prayed by himself many times early in the morning, many times for, uh, throughout the night. There are times we see him weeping over Jerusalem or weeping for his friend Mary. and I'm sure there are other times he wept as he prayed. I suspect, though, uh, and there, there are different uh, views and, and commentators that I, I really like have this view and I agree with it, and that is that the author here is really referring to Gethsemane the cries of the heart of our Lord as he he, uh, pled with God. Is there any other way? He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. I think that's speaking primarily of Gethsemane. You remember that prayer? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, why do you think Jesus included the qualifier, if it is possible. Think about that for a minute. And we all get the, uh, not my will, but your th- will thing. I don't want to assert my will against you, God, and defy you. Why do you think he said, if it is possible? What, what do you think he had in mind there? Of course, it's possible for Jesus to avoid the cross. All he had to do is get up and run away. <clears throat> but he had come to redeem us for our sins. He had come to purchase for himself a people that were his own possession, his sheep, those given to him by the Father. And I think he is saying here, if it is possible to accomplish redemption without the cross, let me know right now. Yet not my will but yours be done. Were those loud cries and tears and supplications merely for his own deliverance from suffering? Or were those loud cries and tears and supplications for you and for me, and our deliverance, as the great high priest had infinite compassion for our brokenness because of our sin? We we read here that uh, that his prayers rose up to him, God the Father, who was able to save him from death and then surprisingly it says and he was heard because of his reverence and you might say oh wait a minute pastor jamie god didn't deliver him he, he, he went to the cross and he died right wasn't he saying is there any other way but the cross but the answer was no and he went to the cross well the answer is he was heard and he rose from the dead God delivered him not merely from physical death as he rose triumphant from the grave. But here's the power. I was thinking through this, about this this morning. What was unique about Jesus' resurrection compared to the resurrection of, say, Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or the son of the widow at Nain or uh, Peter's mother-in-law or maybe back in the Old Testament, Eli raised the son of the widow at Zarephath. Uh, there are other resurrections, uh, people who are dead, and in Lazarus' case, dead three days. What was different? What was the power of the resurrection? And the answer is this, I think. It's not merely that God spoke life to a dead body, as Jesus did, and as Eli did. But the wrath of God, that you would expect to take all of eternity to be satisfied, was accomplished fully. And the Lord Jesus, in that that brief period of time, we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. I don't think he descended into hell for those three days. I think that happened on the cross. But it was breaking the power of sin and death, not just physical, but spiritual and eternal and infinite, that was the power of the resurrection. And so he cried out to him who was able to deliver death from death, and he was heard. And he was delivered. And because he was delivered, friends, you and I, also are delivered. So he is able to empathize because he suffered in the very depths of his soul. Verse 8 tells us that he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I want you to, to look at verse 8 again. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he, was, through what he suffered. That's a concessive statement. There's this concession. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what was suffered. What was was the although there for? What was the purpose? Although this happened, it's like, although this was the case, that happened, it's almost like that shouldn't have happened ordinarily because of this other thing over here. Because he was a son, you wouldn't expect him to learn obedience through what was suffered. But which is it? Did he learn obedience or that he suffered? Was the surprise, as it were, that he needed to learn obedience or that he would suffer. I think it's the second primarily. We just read that he is the eternal son of God, that he's a priest forever. So for him to suffer as he did seems incongruous. For him to become sin in our place, that just doesn't seem to fit. Why would the son be punished for us in our place? And yet that's what happened. It seems incongruous. It doesn't seem to match. But also that statement of learning obedience, you might say, no, wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Wasn't he perfectly righteous because he was God? And the answer is yes, of course, he is. Is, was, always will be. So why did he need to learn obedience in the first place? Well, let's go back and let's revisit that question. We've talked about it recently. As God, he is perfect. He is righteous. That's an essential attribute of God. He's righteous. All right? As God, he's also the law giver. But in order to be a priest for men who were law breakers, he had to take on human flesh, and he had to be a law keeper. It wasn't enough for the law giver to forgive the law breakers. A law keeper had to take their place. And so Jesus learned obedience, something he had never had to do before until the incarnation. He learned what it felt like to be tempted. He didn't know that in heaven. He learned what it felt like to be misunderstood, to be mocked, to be a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He learned what it felt like to have to engage in difficult obedience. Nothing is difficult for God. And yet our Savior, Jesus, through this earth and his earthly, his fleshly existence, the days of his flesh as we read, experienced difficult obedience. And so he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now... The Aaronic priest was also a lawbreaker, right? He failed to keep God's law perfectly. And so he was required to make sacrifices for his own sins before he was qualified to make sacrifices for the sins of others. See, Jesus had achieved this perfect human righteousness. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. So he was learning obedience really throughout his life. In the days of his flesh, he was achieving this perfect human righteousness through day by day, constant, perfect obedience. And As I said earlier, it included everything that he experienced in his days of the flesh from his birth, childhood, infancy, childhood, all the way up, teenage years, never sinned, perfectly righteous, obedient, adulthood, ministry, suffering, and Death. And you might say the cross was the final exam of learning obedience through what was pu- suffer- through what was suffered, and of course he graduated with a perfect score. And so he was—he had no sins of his own that required a sacrifice. He was able, fully qualified in his own merit, to make the sacrifice for us. But I want you to notice: there is a very in- interesting juxtaposition here. A juxtaposition is we have this thing and you have that thing. And it's like, wow, those two things are both happening at the same time. That's very interesting. You'll see that dynamic in some movies. One person's over here doing one thing and somebody's over there doing another thing. And those two things have powerful implications for each other and they don't even know what's happening. And that's a device that, that writers will use sometimes. Well, we find this juxtaposition. The Aaronic priest is offered to sacrifice or offer sacrifices for his own sins. Because he wasn't perfect before he could provide a sacrifice for anyone else. But Jesus, over here, was made perfect through his own obedience, not through any sacrifice, through his own obedience, through his own righteousness. And so there was no sacrifice required for him. And not only was he required to offer the sacrifice, he was qualified to be the sacrifice. He was able to offer himself as the Lamb slain for the sins of the world, the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. We read last week in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, that Jesus, as our great high priest, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted every way that we are, yet he never sinned. Here, that, that's, that, that, that statement is summarized by saying he learned obedience through what he suffered. So I want you to see the heart of Jesus in this. He is inclined to show empathy, let me say it again. Jesus' heart is inclined to show you empathy. The suffering he willingly endured, he did that because he was eager to show you and me his kindness and his mercy and his grace and his empathy. There's nothing. Uh, there's nothing uh, begrudging or reluctant in our Lord as he cares for us in our weakness, as he shows us mercy and grace when we need it the most. His personal experience of weakness and temptation and suffering give him firsthand experience about what compassion looks like and what it uh, feels like and why it's needed. So his qualification as high priest is superior to that of the Aaronic high priest because his suffering was intensely greater And his obedience was perfect. So his capacity to show empathy is superior to that of Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. But finally, uh, we see Jesus' priesthood is superior in his qualification, in his empathy. And then finally, in the ministry of Jesus' priesthood, verse 9, tells us, "...being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who, who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek." The Aaronic priesthood was a great blessing as the, the priest, high priest was a, a mediator between God and men. But however great a blessing that was, Jesus' priesthood is infinitely greater. As we see later in the book of Hebrews, and that's not even uh, uh, considered here yet, but later we'll see that the, the work of the uh, human priests had to be repeated over and over again because it never actually accomplished purification for sins the same sacrifices had to be made every year and the people needed those same sacrifices every year because they could not be made perfect by those sacrifices and then we find as I read in chapter 10 that the blood of bulls and goats never take away the sins of anyone and with all those bulls and all those goats the Aaronic priests were never able to secure eternal salvation for a single person all they could do Point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So let me, let me, 1 Timothy 2 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And while the uh, Aaronic priesthood, uh, Aaronic high priest performed a very important function, he was never able to secure eternal salvation for anyone. He was never able to deliver anyone from their sins. They merely served as placeholders in anticipation of the Messiah. So I want to be very clear here, though. The author of Hebrews is not denigrating the Aaronic priesthood. He's not saying it was defective any more than he's saying Moses and the law was defective or the angels are defective. He's simply saying, as wonderful as it was, Jesus is infinitely greater each has their own place in God's eternal plan of redemption. The angels do, and Moses did, and, 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 and Aaron and the priesthood do. But Jesus is our great high priest. He is the Son of God. He is the one who's been exalted to, to the highest place. So it's Jesus alone that you and I must trust. It is Jesus whom you and I must worship. And it is Jesus that we must seek. With all our hearts. I read an article this week on the Desiring God webpage. I don't know if any of you saw this or not. Uh, It actually was written a month ago by a, a, a contributor named Greg Morse. I'm not familiar with him. But the title of his article intrigued me it was Losing Christ in Christianity. And as I read, he, he begins by asking the question that's really reflected by Jesus in Revelation where he, he challenges the Ephesian church. He says, you've been orthodox, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. And he asks, have we lost our first love? And he warns of losing sight of Christ even while we preach the gospel of forgiveness. Even while we carry out our various aspects of Christian service. Even as we search the Scriptures and we pursue robust and sound theology, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures, but they speak of me. And he says, do we search the Scriptures the way the Pharisees do? Did, or are we finding Jesus, drawing close to Jesus in his word? Even as we pursue holiness, are we doing it in conformity to a particular standard? Or are we pursuing the likeness the character of Jesus. When we talk about sin, do we think of sin as breaking the law? Which it is. Or do you think of sin as rebelling against our Lord Jesus? We can apply biblical principles in order to become better husbands and wives, better fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. We can Study the scriptures and apply biblical principles to be better servants or ministers or elders or deacons or whatever. And yet, at all our seeking, we can simply try to be better at this or that and not know Jesus better. The author of Hebrews holds up the Lord Jesus in front of our eyes and says, He is of infinite worth. He is better than anything and anyone in the whole world. We sang this morning, captivated by His beauty. And that that hymn that uh, asked the question, what can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of this earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. when When our hearts are captivated by the beauty of Christ, we're different, we're transformed. Very famous sermon by a man named Stephen Sharnock, I believe. The expulsive power of a new affection. And he talked about the fact that sin has such a grip on our affections. It has so much power. The only thing to drive it out is an affection for something that we love even more than pleasure or control or our own way or whatever it is. And the only way that happens is we find the beauty of Christ more real and more precious to our hearts. Brothers, sisters, it's not enough to simply declare that Jesus is better than the Aaronic high priest or better than Moses or better than the angels. It's an un- not enough to believe it and to even know why that's true. We must be captivated by his beauty. We must be drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. We sang the bride eyes, ah, not her beauty, but uh, but her, her gaze, her, 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 her glory, her her." her, 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 her her gaze, her focus is on the Lamb. And that must be our driving motivation. May we set our hearts on pursuing what Peter describes when he says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, There was something very attractive about a priest that you could see. And I think that's why the Roman Catholic system is so popular, so powerful today. I want to see a person telling me I'm forgiven. I don't want to have to believe by faith that what Jesus has accomplished is applied to my heart. I don't want to have to believe. I want to hear. I want to walk by sight, not by faith. God tells us Jesus is an infinitely better priest than any priest, anywhere, anyhow, anytime. Let us be captivated by his beauty.